0: podcast myself your host Silas Mine my co-host as always Christian Reynolds today we actually have a good UFC card to get into UFC 285 the return of Jon Jones Uh, much to my surprise I was convinced that when he vacated the light heavyweight title that was it and he was just never going to fight again and he was just going to spend all of his time sitting on the sidelines uh, flinging shit on social media and being like well I'm totally going to go up to heavyweight and easily beat Francis Ngannou when I feel like it. And uh, we've actually got a Jon Jones fight booked at heavyweight. Uh, Bear in mind, the recording of this podcast is on the Monday before the event. And any number of Jon Jones things could happen in the time between now and then to sabotage this fight. But, uh, you know, of course, uh, with the departure of Francis Ngannou from the UFC, we now have this uh, vacant UFC title fight between light heavyweight GOAT and a former title challenger, Cyril Garn. I mean, before we get into Cyril Garn, like, Christian, what's, what's your feeling about John Jones right now and where he's at?
1: I think it's just not a good look for someone to be saying they're going to be fighting at heavyweight for 10 years and then finally doing it. Like, it, There's a reason he didn't do it sooner, back when he was in his prime. I don't think now that you're old it's the time cuz he's looked regressed pretty noticeably in his last several fights and he and then he hasn't fought for several years. I don't expect ring rust to be an issue for him at all. I think once you're at that level, the ring rust is really overplayed and like not to quote Dominic Cruz, but it's it's really just he's he's going to be prepared enough. He's going to come in looking like John Jones, I think, but I think he's going to look pretty bad. I think he's going to look slow. He's never even been the fastest guy, but I think going against someone who's genuinely a speed athlete at heavyweight is going to make him look pretty sluggish. I think he's going to look way less strong than people are anticipating. I I do actually think that John Jones could win, because if he gets on top, he's still a menace. And Nsirugan and is, is liable enough to just kind of take himself down, even if he doesn't get taken down by a uh, like, John Jones just doesn't have very good takedowns anymore. He hasn't for several years now. He used to genuinely be very good at it. it it's not even, like, denigrating how he used to be. It's uh, it, it's really just he's shot now, or, or at least very past it. So we have enough evidence to to believe that he's going to look bad, and I'm expecting him to not look great.
0: Yeah, it's hard to expect. You know, people, for a start, you're right. People have this, like memory of what john jones was in his prime just and against certain matchups just permanently seared into their brain i guess because he still never really lost and 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 because of that people just haven't noticed the clear uh phys- physical and skill regression that has happened in the last several years of his active career and then not to mention that he's, you know he's what like 36 now at a certain point i don't think it's ring rust it's just like you're going to hit diminishing returns at a certain point in terms of your experience and physicality, and you're just going to start to look worse. And if you take three years off, having looked, as you said, not great in his last few outings and had some kind of things exposed about his style and just where he's at in his career in terms of technical flaws that have always been there in his game, or at least like gaps in the like totality of how his game functions that are just becoming more and more apparent now that he is uh, slowing down physically and just fighting uh, way bigger people who are just higher calibers of athlete than a bunch of like old basically middleweights who had at their primes in Pride. <laughs>
1: His last great performance was against Anthony Smith, and even then he had some pretty severe lapses. Like, there's, of course, the knee that could have lost in the fight, where Anthony Smith to to take the the out. There was a weird sequence that is etched into my mind where he throws, like, this god-awful shifting overhand and makes fucking Anthony Smith look like Willie Pep. He, he has not gotten better in any meaningful regard...
0: Yeah, and you know to elaborate a little bit more on what I was just saying, um you know John Jones has never really had like phase shifting threats in the way that he kind of needs to to make his style function against certain matchups because you know he's a fighter who actually does all of his best work in the clinch both in terms of you know close range clinch offense and The great upper body takedowns that he's able to get from there and as you say being a ferocious top control and ground and pound artist but the problem is that he doesn't really actually have ways of proactively creating clinch exchanges and that his game relies on the idea that nobody wants to be at long range with him because also at his best he was an extremely fast and creative and diverse kicker but he's never really been a particularly like crafty long range kickboxer. He Doesn't really have the kind of, uh, you know, distant management tools in terms of his footwork and you know, uh, ring craft and like having things like a, a jab. You know, he he can throw a jab, but he doesn't have a jab. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Uh, John Jones is, is very strange because he's like a legendary tactician, but his strategy has always been lacking. And the strategy is something that, I, for me, is what separates him from like Volkanovski or Aldo, or or like the, in my opinion, the actual greatest fighters ever. Uh, in MMA, is, is that John Jones' strategy has always been lacking. He just tries to find a single move that works really neat. Like an example is his takedown into or takedown threat into spinning elbow, that's just one move that he's like known for. When it's worked like three times his entire career, like that's the closest to like a phase shifting threat he has. Uh, aside from like some some sneaky knees that he can land as you enter a clinch with him.
0: Yeah, uh, and like I said, like th- this is something that's just worked for so many just because but because of the meta of the division that he's always fought in, where for a long time he was just fighting people who were way smaller and older than him and were kind of shocked. And in just in general, he has had to fight people who don't want to hang around at range with him and feel like they need to pressure and get on the inside, but then inevitably walk into the clinch where, as I say, he, he uh, genuinely was a great technician at his best and where he always did his best work. And then you see against, you know, Tiago Santos, what happens when someone's just like, I I can just fight you at this range and kick you way harder and counter your kicks. And, you know, you see in that fight why, genuinely, why uh, Rumble Johnson could have been an absolutely horrific matchup for John Jones at the time that they fought. And, you know, he. Genuinely looked absolutely befuddled by the ring craft and counter punching of Dominic Reyes. Whatever you want to say about the result of that fight, not a performance that has aged well. It's just a fight that shows you how John Jones' game functions when he actually has to move forward and actively press his advantages, as well as just yeah, surely genuine skill degradation in the way that he's able to secure takedowns and making Dominic Reyes look like fucking prime Jose Aldo. It's just weird that a fighter at this level has never been punished for basically not having mid-range tools or any real way of proactively creating your preferred engagement.
1: Yeah, I think it says a lot about John Jones that his solution to the Reyes fight was just gas pedal. Like, he just turned up the gas really hard in the third, fourth, and fifth, and then by the time the fourth and fifth came around, Reyes was just very tired and couldn't maintain the the pace that he had set. So I feel like, strategically, John Jones is very insulated from a lot of his deficits just by having insane cardio. And Cyril Gaunt has pretty insane cardio as well. Uh, he has is also insulated by his range. Cyril Gaunt's very rangy as well, and just generally a better ranged kickboxer. Uh, he's been insulated by having a dramatic strength advantage over many of his opponents, or at least a leverage advantage. Over people like Daniel Cormier, who is probably strictly stronger than him, but not as functionally strong when it comes to tie-ups. And then Ciragan is incredibly strong in his own right, also much naturally larger. John Jones has gotten heavy, but he is built up to heavyweight. He is not a natural heavyweight, so that is something to definitely pay attention to. I think Gon's going to physically outclass him if they they end up in situations. That John isn't expecting to. I, I think maybe if John can get his preferred uh, situations, like if he can just get like a really nice entry, then Gon's probably not going to have much to do about it because Gon has kind of whack takedown defense in his own right. But it's not terrible. He does,
0: but but I also feel like the way he defends takedowns just plays into John Jones's game because it's, it's it's not like John Jones is a crazy like reactive double guy or anything. You know, as you said, like Cyril Garn is very strong and a decent technician in the clinch in his own right. Can just kind of like chill up against the cage with an underhook in those kind of positions, uh, and while the technical wrestling edge should be on John Jones's side, he he really couldn't establish any any kind of dominant positions on Thiago Santos or Dominic Reyes, and as you say, Cyril Garn is just much larger and physically stronger than any of those guys and if even if it does end up in the clinch I uh, I do feel like there's going to be a strength disparity that's just going to be bad for John Jones um, Zero Khan himself you know has his own technical flaws and just looked particularly experienced or well schooled in the brief moments where we've actually got to see him put on his back so there's something there and you know john jones he yeah, he has a lot of the intangibles of a great fighter you know he's just he's a winner he he figures it out when things aren't going his way even if you want to criticize the the entire like <sighs> structure of his game he f- just finds ways to win fights
1: yeah where he, what he lacks in strategy he makes up for in creativity and uh like just dynamism? He's
0: just insane. Like he's a psychopath. He doesn't believe he can lose.
1: Yeah, and the second Daniel Cormier fight wasn't really going his way. Daniel was having a lot of success. And then a move that Daniel had even brought up to him in a press conference, like, oh, you're not going to kick me with your left leg. He did it, because, you know, that deep into a fight, you pull out a tool it, It's gonna it, that's, like, reliable to work on someone. It's going to work, because the guy's not ready for it. And then in the finishing sequence, the finishing sequence is much more... Impressive to me than the actual head kick he landed. It's not hard to kick Daniel Cormier in the head. It's hard to finish him like that. He does, like, the chase into a foot sweep while Daniel's running away. He, like, does a silly jump that Daniel, like, cowers from and then falls to the floor. And then he just beats the fucking shit out of him. That's why John Jones is dangerous. Because if he actually gets an inch, he's going to take a mile. But I think this is a matchup that doesn't afford him many inches. Yeah,
0: but... That's the thing, Cyril Garn, it's hard to say those things about him. You know, he was down in that fight against Ngannou and had top position. He was like, I'm going to do a silly fucking leg entanglement."
1: Yeah, he didn't
0: know how to finish.
1: And then the Tai Tuivasa fight, it's, just, it's Tai Tuivasa. Like We love Tai here, but Tai is not uh, the type of fighter that you should be going life and death with if you're as athletically talented as people are giving credit for.
0: No, and it didn't surprise me at all just because of how those guys match up and look, like, John Jones genuinely he, he doesn't have the kind of like transitional counter punching tools that make me think that he's going to be able to do that kind of thing to Cyril Gam in the way that Taito Ivasa does, which sounds like a funny thing to say, but you know th- th- this is the point of fight analysis you can't you can't just be like, well, Tatu Ivasa hurt." John Jones, uh, Hurt Sirugan and Tai Tuivas is kind of a meme journeyman and John Jones is the greatest fighter of all time so he's going to win, you, that, that, that's not how style matchups work but you know, Sirugan I, I guess it says something about the way that he was actually able to fight from a deficit when he was getting fucked up in that Tai Tuivas fight because he has had a lot of performances where where he just kind of chilled and, and won at an extremely like controlled and medium pace and didn't do any more than he really had to against like uh, Volkov and in particular Jairzina Rosenstruck and you, you always have to be concerned about fight, fighters like that when you think well what happens when something starts going wrong do you have dog in you
1: yeah, and, and something I would like to bring up is the Taito fight is one of Gon's only fights that went from a simmer to a boil so I think there's a real possibility. This fight just fucking sucks. Like, what if it's just boring? Well, like, if, really even if Gon's winning pretty comfortably on the outside, uh, John could then start to gas pedal, but then Gon's just pretty good at moving his feet. I could see him just maintaining his cardio and staying on the outside, not really letting Jones get too close. Or I, I also think that Gon is a bit better as like a strict out fighter in the sense of he's better at staying all the way in or all the way out. He he's his mid range tools. They're pretty lacking in the same way the Jones are, but they're yeah, not non existent.
0: This is a fight where neither guy really has mid range tools.
1: Yeah, uh, the closest Gon has is a, a pretty decent body kick, but I doubt he's going to go to it because he's probably going to be terrified of getting taken down. So I, I think uh, it's possible Gon gets in his own head. We can't forget that he's still pretty inexperienced for an MMA fighter, or as an MMA fighter compared to one of the most experienced guys in the sport. Like you, you can't have much more experience than John Jones has, so he could just fucking gas pedal, uh, gone really hard from the get go. Whether some like first three round storms, then we could see gone in territory where we haven't really seen him, where he goes at like a insane pace for three rounds, and then doesn't get any meaningful progress throughout that. Because you know anyone can be broken. I, I think if anyone is going to break gone, it could be a fighter like Jones, if not explicitly Jones someone that's just very rangy as well has really strong tools in one specific area that gone isn't very strong, which is, you know, on his back, uh, gone could just throw a body kick because he gets crowded a little bit too much and then end up getting taken down off or get his foot kicked out. And then boom, he's on his back and he has to deal with John Jones being incredibly fresh on top. But something we, we, you know, mentioned earlier, like, He's, he's regressing. What if he's just bad at being on top now? Or what if being against a heavyweight kind of throws off his ability to be on top? You look at the people that John Jones is training with for this camp, and it's three kickboxers that fucking suck on bottom. Uh, or, like, aren't good, at least. It's like Walt Harris, Maurice Screen, and uh, yeah, someone. Oh, it, it, then, uh, like. I, I don't even remember the guy's name. Like, just.
0: Vaughn Lewis?
1: No, no, no! It's a uh, guy who knocked out taffa with the the counter.
0: Jorgen de Castro.
1: Yeah, Jorgen de Castro. Those are that's the three beasts that he's training with that uh, people have been making fun of on Twitter.
0: Well, okay. Well, this makes sense as why well. he's finally going up to heavyweight then, because you know all of that time that he was talking about years ago that he was going to go up to heavyweight but then never did was totally because that was when Alistair Overeem was at Jackson Wink and he was just getting the shit beaten out of him every day yeah
1: and like Orlovsky he was probably just oh Orlovsky can box the fucking shit out of me and Overeem can compete with me in every phase So, yeah, like
0: Cyril Garn is basically Jackson Wink era Overeem less terrifying in the clinic. way less dangerous yeah but with like way better cardio and doesn't break
1: yeah, I I could see John just being like, "Oh, well, I'm crushing these guys," but I mean, he should be. Uh, so let me go heavy. But uh, more so, I think that he just wants someone that's roughly the same physicality and has the same wheelhouse that he. I I expect him to be underestimating Gon's bottom game. I think Gon can get up if he gets taken down, and I think it it could be giving him an unrealistic expectation of what he's about to go into fighting Maurice Green. One of the worst bottom play, bottom players at heavyweight, or Jorgen De Castro, someone who basically doesn't even have a bottom game.
0: He hit that arm triangle from the bottom against Jan Volante.
1: Yeah, you can't forget that him him beating a middleweight with a meme sub. Very important. Uh, it's just, uh, it's not a good look. uh like optics wise, to see who he's training with in preparation for someone that's so dramatically one better and different and too different than those fighters. Uh, Gan actually has some athletic upside on the bottom. Like, he's strong, he can fucking explode up, maybe. You know, him having troubles getting up against Nganu could very much be the fact that what's the best case scenario if you get up against Nganu? You're now fighting Nganu on the feet? That's not much incentive. And then also, Nganu wasn't really pushing too hard on the ground didn't give uh gone too much like reason to need to get up quickly or urgently and also Ngannou's fucking heavy he's he's very yeah, heavy Ngannou
0: is fucking huge he is a real like
1: and and also not to disparage he he's gotten good at wrestling like Ngannou went from not being able to wrestle really, really at all to being a pretty decent wrestler by the heavyweight standards
0: yeah i mean you see the difference between the first and second Stipe fight and you see you know you see that he was always just disgustingly physically strong and just has a natural feel for how to grapple
1: looking at his curtis blades fights are enough to notice that he's just like a pretty competent grappler innately just when it comes to even not grappling like a a portion of grappling in mma is like is taking place when you're not grappling because you're still worrying about it so against curtis blades the fact that he was just able to maintain that level of composure meant that he kind of like had the the hips and like the the strength to just deny takedowns, if you really need to worry about it too much.
0: Yeah, but Cyril Garn still easily hosses around huge heavyweights in the clinch. Yeah, he is very physically strong,
1: and he has his own takedowns. Yeah, like he if he ends up on top of Jones, could be a, a round of stalling.
0: Cyril Gaon can kind of do a double leg.
1: Yeah, he can. He can do some weird little like knee taps. He's good at. It, it, what if he just catches Jones' kicks and trips him out and just Muay Thai's him for a little while? I could see any permutation of like random X-Factor things about each guy in this matchup, which kind of intrigues me a lot. More so than yeah, I expected to be intrigued m- by the fight going into it.
0: Yeah, the more we've talked about it, the more interested I am in it, just because I've been so over Jon Jones for a while now. And I am going to be picking Cyril Garn because I do expect Jon Jones to be coming into this fight just kind of looking like a shell of a man and to just finally for this to be the moment where he suddenly realizes um, how much the sport has passed him by um, but I'm probably slightly biased in that because I've been expecting that to happen for John Jones for several fights now and he, he keeps somehow winning robberies against people that you, you know on how most people rate John Jones he should be beating easily but it's, it is hard to unsee those Tiago Santos and Dominic Reyes performances and then consider all of that time off and like I said I don't expect it to be ring rust I expect it to be the fact that he's 36 now
1: yeah and people always say that going up in weight or like going up to heavyweight whenever you're older isn't necessarily a bad thing like Daniel Cormier was like 39 or something whenever he went up to heavyweight but he was he was a former heavyweight he had a good matchup. Yeah, it's one thing for a guy that's 5'11 to go up to people that are the same height as the people he's been fighting. And if they have a leverage advantage, they're still going to be outstrengthed. Like, John Jones versus Daniel Cormier at heavyweight could have played out so much differently. Like, Daniel Cormier really could have fucked up John Jones at heavyweight, I think. Just on comfortability at the weight and and like recognizing the fluidity of his hands having a little bit of extra power or not even a little bit like a lot of extra power with his hands he's
0: a great speed athlete at heavyweight as well in the way that i just don't expect 36 year old john jones to be to be honest and john's
1: never john's never been a speed athlete he he's his athleticism is mostly characterized by his insane chin insane cardio uh really good dexterity and just creativity like he, he he you throw him and he's, he's going to land on his feet. He's like, he's like a cat. He's, he's very dexterous and he's very agile and like figures shit out. So those aren't really things that I think are that useful for heavyweight because you go up to heavyweight. If your thing's having a chin anyone no, can still knock don't you out. I not really
0: expect uh, him to have all of that left at this point. Yeah.
1: <laughs> like if you're, if your thing is cardio chin, and your agility, than going up a weight class where you're going to be physically weighed down, so you're not going to be as agile. You're going to be carrying more weight, so you're probably going to gas faster, if he's even capable of gassing at this point. And you're fighting people that hit hard enough to where they can knock out anyone. Once you get over 250 pounds, you can knock out anyone. Like, a guy that's 250 pounds can knock out someone that's 600 pounds of pure muscle, no problem. Like, it's just about... There's diminishing returns for, for power distri- distribution as you go up in weight. If you're a, he- a heavy enough guy, you can knock on anyone. So, like, no, chin chins don't get as strong as power gets.
0: Yeah, and uh, but then the, just the fact that he also is fighting the best speed and agility athlete in the division today, yep. who was in his physical prime.
1: It's just a lot of bad looks for Jones, and I'm going to pick gone by decision. With the caveat that I think if John Jones is in remotely good form and can get one or two takedowns in the first couple rounds, I think he actually wins pretty comfortably.
0: Yeah, and let's also not discount the possibility that Cyril gone uh, just gets robbed.
1: Yeah, he, he could get robbed. He also could just come in and be like, oh my god, the aura, oh, John Jones.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, it's John Jones. Like I say, he he's a winner.
1: But then in a much higher level matchup, uh, Valentina Shruchenko versus Alexa Grasso. Okay. This is like John Jones versus Cyril Gunn. Uh... <laughs> Don't look at it too closely and it's like it. <laughs> it it's a agile uh like boxer versus someone that's very well rounded. That uh, that's a, that's a what ki- the similarity a kicky, is. End.
0: A kicky clinchy person.
1: <laughs> yeah, the the goat of their respective division is <laughs> is, is like fighting um... a, a new challenger. Except, I'm trying yeah, to yeah, try real hard
0: with this one. I'm not too sure. Um, okay, so I mean this is always what the first thing you have to ask with a Valentina a title defense. Um it's does does Alexa Grasso have anything to offer that Valentina hasn't dealt with quite comfortably several times before?
1: I think so. Yeah? Uh she's very quick footed, which Valentina's fought, but she hasn't fought like the same type of quick footed fighter that Alexa Grosso is, Alexa's pretty likely to just stay on the outside and force uh, Valentina to stay at mid-range or come forward, which is just a thing that Valentina doesn't really prefer to do. Alexa Grosso, also not uh, a terrible grappler in, in any regard. She's she's pretty well-versed in both like offensive and defensive grappling. Her jiu is pretty decent defensively.
0: She really doesn't accept bad positions.
1: Yeah, she's a smart fighter, and she's experienced she's not like Valentina's been fighting people that are pretty much green like if you really look at it uh in a lot of her scenarios like Alexa Grosso is is still young she's in her prime she's able to box well which Valentina is not a great boxer like she's always had boxing deficits um uh, and Alexa Grosso's shown that she can handle stronger athletes like like Viviana Araujo uh handled Macy Barber pretty easily her her last loss was to Carlos Esparza and she still made it to a decision. Like if you're not getting finished by Carlo Esparza, then you're obviously pretty decent grappling, even if you lose. And also it was kind of a robbery or drawbery. Massive robbery. <laughs> yeah. And then before what, that wasn't it wasn't it a draw? Uh it was a loss, but it should have been a draw, if I remember.
0: That was another another one of those Carlos Esparza fights I'm thinking of.
1: Like, you're really just looking at her career, she she's made a lot of progress, and she's pretty experienced. But then you look at Valentina's most recent fights, and it's people that are, by comparison, kind of green. Tyler Santos, not necessarily green, but also kind of came the closest that anyone's come to beating uh, Valentina so far. Just by being in her prime physically.
0: Just by being very strong and being good at taking the back. Yeah. Uh, And Alexa Grasso got a good back take on her. You know, uh, I can see Valentina just, just insisting on the head and arm throw and just getting her back taken every time, but uh, it's just it's hard for me to see the upside for Alexa Grasso in this fight, even though I have enjoyed a lot of her performances. And like you say, she just she has a lot of just like fundamental boxing tools that Valentina doesn't really have. Um, like if Alexa Grasso is able to enforce a jabbing battle, I think that's interesting, but I'm A, I'm not too sure what she looks like jabbing a southpaw and B, I think it is difficult Alexa, for Alexa Grasso in this matchup that her best success as a boxer tends to come as like an uh, outfighting counterpuncher and people who want to enter range on her and who she's able to like just take nice little angles doing check hooks and stuff and c- keep, keep them on the end of, of her jab and one-two but then we kind of see against uh, uh, Joanne Wood that when someone is okay with just fighting her at long range, she kind of struggles to deal with a really active kicker. And she was getting kicked up a little bit in that fight uh, leading up to uh, Jojo just uh, giving her back off of an ill-advised spinning elbow not an entirely un-Valentina Shevchenko thing to do.
1: I, I think the the Joanne Wood shout is important because, uh, you know, Joanne Wood is a very active kicker. That's one thing that you can always give her. Even if she's losing, she's still active about it. Whereas Valentina is not always active at kicking. She's much better at kicking, but she's not always active about it. She doesn't enforce her game in the way that you would like someone with that pronounced of an advantage at at that range to do. So really I could see her just kind of allowing Alexa Grosso to have some boxing success and her just trying to tap with low kicks and like low teeps and then the occasional body kick or like middle high. Like Alexa Grosso has a good chin. She's scrambly. I think she's going to be able to make it to a decision or possibly uh, just like avoid getting put in crucifix. And if Valentina can't get you in the crucifix, she's probably not going to finish you on the ground. And if you have a chin, she's probably not going to knock you out of the head.
0: I think it'll go five, and, unless Val just lands a perfect head kick again.
1: Alex Grosso just has like a lot of, like a, a lot of volume. Like this type of volume is kind of annoying for someone that is waiting so much for their counters. I could see Alex Grosso just having a very even fight the entire time, and then it being a and pretty even decision. But I don't think it's going to be a shutout. I think if it was a shutout, I'd be pretty surprised. Because Valentina doesn't really shut people out that are this competent. She she kind of fights... She, it just gives them too much credit. Like, I think if Valentina was on her shit, and, and really was intent on, on finishing the fight, then I think that she could. I, I think she could make Alexa Russell look really bad and look small. Like, if they just enter the clinch... It's probably a wrap if Valentina really pushes her advantages there, but I just don't expect her to. Even if she just
0: threw a few more left body kicks,
1: yeah, if she throws like four kicks, four more kicks around. Then it's a rough fight for Alexa Grasso.
0: So you're not going to pick Alexa Grasso, are you?
1: Uh, nah, I mean, I kind of want to just because there's no consequences to it. Like we're not a betting web- we're we're not a betting podcast, but I I do think Valentina's probably going to win. Uh, in spite of that, I'm going to say Alexa Grasso by uh, like 48-47 decision.
0: Yeah, I'd love to join you there, but it's just—it's really hard to see Alexa Grasso sustaining the success that she's going to need to be able to win enough rounds here. It's just very concerning to me. Um, even though there's definitely upside to Grasso's win over Viviana Araujo in just her clearly being able to handle a much larger, physically stronger opponent, Viviano Araujo is very one-note as a boxer and doesn't fight at a particularly high pace and is exactly the kind of fighter who's just going to let Alexa Grasso win the same exchange against her over and over again. And for all of her problems, Valentina has just never come close to losing that kind of fight because she can always find one or two really big flashy moments that catch the judges' attention and enough top control to just eke out a very clean while somewhat inert decision. And um, even with the kind of unique challenges that Alexa Grasso is able to bring to the table in this matchup, it, it it's, it's hard to see them being enough against Valentina at this point unless she just uh, happens to drop off a cliff out of nowhere. So, gonna have to go Val by like a 49 46 decision, but I would love to be wrong as always. Uh, so, moving down the card, we have a really interesting welterweight banger between uh, Chef Kat Rekmanov and Jeff Neal. Uh, Chef Kat, of course, all of the big hotness at welterweight these days undefeated, all finishes. He's extremely violent, he's very well rounded. Uh, coming forward is an incredibly dangerous and creative and adaptable offensive threat he has a lot of the classic tall guy mma game of walking people into big step knees and uh, snap down front headlock chokes but he's also a fantastic takedown artist an absolutely ferocious ground and pound threat from top control he gets real tall and gets to a good stacked position and just throws the filthy downward straights that he puts people out cold with. He also has like classic tall guy defense and just always thinks he can just be far away enough while imposing his own offense to not really worry about it and has uh, just been clapped by a fast guy who can throw an overhand over a tall guy high guard been a problem for him, but uh, we've always been able to see his kind of gritty determination pull through those kind of spots and still be able to win those matches makes him an interesting proposition for fighting Jeff Neal who for all his problems is a fast and dangerous accurate puncher Um, he's very limited in terms of the tools that he will use but he has quite a strong application of those tools and um, I think he's almost certainly going to hurt Shavkat with a left hand in the first round um, it's just what happens after that, given that, as I've said, uh, Shafkat has kind of shown the wherewithal to be able to uh, get his shit together and adjust to things that are giving him problems in a fight and just overwhelm his opponent with a just such brutally violent offense. And uh, Jeff Neal, on the other hand, has had issues with kind of just taking his eye off the ball, even in fights that he's winning very comfortably.
1: I just keep seeing in my head Shavkat throwing like a really long straight as Jeff Neal throws a kick from too close. Like he just throws like a body kick and just gets like pasted by a straight. So that's kind of what I'm gonna pick, and I'm gonna say first round. I I don't think that Jeff Neal is defensively responsible enough while throwing his offense to avoid Shavkat just kind of bulldozing into offensive situations. Also, Jeff Neal is really good at taking down. Or at uh, defensive, like takedown reactions, but his his ability to just not get put on his back isn't like I haven't seen it be impressive enough for me to pick it over someone like Shovcott, who's a genuinely very good grappler.
0: Somewhat difficult to assess the quality of Jeff Neal's defensive wrestling. Uh, he has appeared to be very hard to take down, but. The best offensive wrestler that he's fought is most likely uh, Balaam Muhammad, who he shot out of the fight very comfortably, but that that was still quite a while ago, and, and Balaam Muhammad has come a long way since then. And he's just not the kind of either imposing physical threat that Shafka Rachmanov is, or just neither does he have his knack for just absolutely sickening violence
1: yeah also just the type of fighter Bilal is he's not like he's not like this insane takedown artist or anything
0: it's funny i had almost kind of the opposite reaction to you where uh, i was just uh picturing the just kind of getting clapped with with a quick whippy left hand as he's like stepping in with a knee or something um but chef ridiculously tough and the the shape of the fight seems to favor him the the longer it goes because even if Jeff Neal is able to have early success, having seen him absolutely beating the shit out of Vicente Luque in the first round and having hurt him multiple times and just absolutely dominating the fight and then really letting him back into the fight in the second round and having to have safe so he'd absolutely scream at him in the corner to just get his shit together and go out and finish the guy that he was totally outclassing early. And he was able to do it. But uh, I think if he concedes that kind of second round to Shavkat, particularly Jeff Neal being someone who will concede the front foot, will let Shavkat come forward and put his own offense together, the fight is just going to get really ugly for him if he isn't able to just deck Shavkat in the first five minutes.
1: I agree. I'm going to pick Shavkat by first round KO. I'm
0: thinking like second round ground up pound TKO.
1: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying like... Yeah, I'm not saying he's going to like put him flush out on the feet. I just think he's probably going to hurt him or like engage the grappling and then fuck him up. I, I think no matter what, it'll be like a, a finish while they're on the ground. You
0: know, Jeff Neal is dangerous, and he has an insane chin. And so moving down the card, we have another absolute banger in the lightweight division. Uh, Mateusz Gamrock coming in short notice to fill in for Dan Hooker against Jalen Turner. And... Well, it seems like, in many ways, the logical thing to do is to pick Matej Gamrot because he is an absolutely relentless takedown threat. And while he doesn't have a great takedown percentage, he will just keep spamming takedowns until he's able to grab to drag people into his fight. And that has worked against, and has worked in pretty dominant fashion against, um, you know, everyone except. So, you know, the absolute highest caliber of grappler he's fought in people like Benil Dariush, Guran Kutata Ladze. I mean, it technically got him the win against Armin Saruki. And even though most people who actually watched that fight agree that that was an incorrect scorecard, um, but it still shows that he's still able to hang in with, hang in scrambles for five rounds with a guy like that. Um, But then against, you know, Old Jeremy Stevens, Scott Holtzman, he, he, he's he's just been absolutely demolishing these guys. Then we have Jalen Turner, who, the striker by trade, but he is fucking huge, and a lot of his game is built around just being a like a transitional phase shifting like counter fighter in the way that I could really see uh, Mateusz Gamrot just shooting into a big step knee from Jalen Turner and just getting murderized early. Uh,
1: I, I think that Jalen Turner... Like, I just need to, to see more of Jalen Turner grappling to not expect him to get subbed.
0: Yeah, I mean, he really might just get subbed.
1: Yeah, like, he he's... I mean, he's he's good at grappling. Like, certainly, you don't get to this point without being at least decent at it.
0: And we've only really got to see him as a grappler offensively in fights where he's completely outclassing people and gets to flex his offensive submission skills.
1: Yeah, and Gamera just had, like, a streak of fighting a bunch of insane grapplers. Like, one after the other. They're all, like, fantastic grapplers. Like, Benil Dariush, uh, Diego Ferreira, Armin Sarukian... Like they're all really good grapplers. And then the people before that he fought in um in Scott Holtzman and Jeremy Stevens, they're they're like a pretty far step below and he finished them fucking easily. He ran through Jeremy Stevens. So unless Jalen Turner is able to get through the grappling just by being large enough, I think that it's actually A a terrible matchup for him if they get to the ground. But cannot forget, Jalen Turner is dangerous as fuck on the feet, and if they are on the feet for any extended period of time, Gamrod is in trouble, because I do not think Gamrod is a very good kickboxer. He does not like being kicked. I I think he is a pretty mid kickboxer compared to Jalen Turner, who's one of the better offensive strikers in the division. Yeah, I am a little disappointed that uh, Jalen Turner's last fight got cancelled. Because this was originally supposed to be him fighting Dan Hooker. And it would have been him fighting Jamie Malarkey, Brad Riddell, and Dan Hooker. So him just clearing out the entire lower weight division. uh, Or or like lower weight for City Kickboxing. That would have been funny.
0: Yeah, and in a weird way, Jalen Turner is kind of just a better version of Dan Hooker at this point.
1: Yeah, I, I think that he has a lot of difficulty in this matchup. Just on not being able to entertain the grappling at all. But... Maybe I'm wrong. I, we haven't seen enough of Jalen Turner's grappling. We he genuinely could just be good enough at grappling at this point to to hang for a little while, or or even strength wise, he could not win.
0: I mean, from what we have seen from Jalen Turner on the mat, I wouldn't be tremendously surprised if this ended up being a kind of Jorge Masvidal, Damien Meyer moment where the uh, kickboxer gets into grappling situations with the grappler and is just like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm good at grappling. Let's just grapple. That's fine.
1: Has a really good RNC. He he could hurt uh, Gamrot and then RNC him. Like, Gamrot has looked hurtable in his last several fights. To catch, huh? Yeah, he was getting kind of boxed up by CDF in, in parts. He got hurt horribly by Benio Yeah, There's a, a lot of stuff that could spell danger for mm-hmm. Gamrot. Yeah, I think him being so large could... Because we're not even talking about his height. We're talking about the fact the guy's, like, a middleweight fighting at lightweight.
0: Yeah, one of my favorite weird MMA fun facts is that Jalen Turner was uh, Michael Bisping's main sparring partner for Luke Rockhold the second time.
1: Yeah, like, he's not just, uh, like, tall for the division. He's fucking huge. He cuts a ton of weight, and I don't think there's many people that can physically hang with him uh, when it comes to, like, pure strength matchups. Like, I if...
0: Uh, Has he lost at lightweight?
1: Um... no, oh, he got he got decisioned by Matt Prvola, twenty nineteen.
0: Oh, I forgot about the Matt Frivola fight. I probably should have watched that before I made this pick.
1: Well, he's twenty seven. Like in twenty nineteen, he was much younger. He's he's made such dramatic leaps since then. Like he he went from basically not even having a, a functioning striking game and just being large to having one of the better offensive processes in the division. He's very powerful. He has great body work. His uh, transitional offense is very violent and, and powerful. His ground and pound is dangerous. He's able to submit you after he hurts you. Matt Fervol is good. There's a lot of factors.
0: Yeah, and this is just the thing about Gamrock. Despite being an absolutely fantastic a uh, grappler once it gets to the mat, his takedowns are... Weird low percentage, like low singles that people generally don't do in MMA. Because if you fight active kickers and people who just spam knees and stuff, you are liable to just uh, like shoot into getting yourself soccer kicked, like you know has happened to uh, a right kind of in like multiple fights now. I just have such a strong image of him just just ducking into Jalen Turner's massive knees or some shit like that. It's pro. It's probably the wrong pick to make, but it's just the vibe.
1: I think that is fair. I am expecting that kind of, even though I feel like it's illogical to expect it. I feel like Gamrot is the the correct pick, yep. but I do think Turner is actually gonna gonna like get the. I think he's gonna get the finish. Like if you look at Tapology's picks, uh, Jalen Turner is a twenty five percent and Matish Gamrot seventy five percent. But I'm going to say Mitation um, Gramrot by first round submission with the caveat that I I really do think Turner's going to get it. And then we have Jamie Pickett versus Bo Nickel in the most difficult to pick fight on the entire card because it's, it's just weird. Like, Bo Nickel is very green and for all we know, he's just going to get fucked up by the first person that throws a decent low kick. Yeah, I mean, it's probably not yeah. going to be jamie pickett though it's not to be expected
0: like bo nickel is extremely green but uh obviously he has a very strong wrestling base
1: fantastic wrestler like all that all that jazz like i'm sure everyone watching this knows that he's he's a great wrestler
0: and in the very short amount of fight time that we've got to see from him in his three and oh career um he appears to be attempting to develop uh you know multi-dimensional phase-shifting MMA game with, you know, threats in different phases that play off of each other. You know, his Contender Series fight is only, like, a minute long, but in that time we see that, that, you know, he is keenly aware that the other guy is so completely shit-scared of getting taken down by him that he doesn't even have to feint a double leg to just do, like, a level-changing overhand left and just deck the dude immediately cuts through to mount, and then uh, rolls over to finish with a slick-ass triangle.
1: Yeah, when, when I say it's a hard to pick fight, I more mean it's, it's like we got to be very vague with how Boneckel's going to win, because I'm going to just say Boneckel's probably going to beat the fucking shit out of him, but I just don't know how it's going to look.
0: But it's just crazy how little we've even seen of him and how he holds up in a fight that lasts literally any amount of time for him to be in the UFC and you know Jamie Pickett kind of got hossed around and outclassed by you know guys like Kyle Dorcas who uh, not been doing so well in the UFC middleweight division these days um, and I expect this to kind of just be a showcase for Bo Nickel, despite it being perfectly reasonable matchmaking given the experience differential um, it, it is just strange to me that they've brought him there so soon
1: yeah, his combined, uh, like fight time in his three professional fights is two minutes thirty seconds, roughly. He has a one minute two second RNC in his first contender series fight, and then he has a fifty two second triangle choke, and then his first MMA fight he won by punches in a, in thirty three seconds. He's a very like he's a fighter that just goes in really hard and tries to get the fight done, and I think that's probably the right thing to do against Jamie Pickett. Or even a lot of people just at middleweight. Uh,
0: like, yeah, interesting to see how far it can take you, though. What happens when you just fight someone with a chin who can grapple defensively?
1: Yeah, I think it'll take him probably as far as, like... Bruno Silva, comfortably? And that's comfortably.
0: They should not match him up with the uh, fluffy Hernandezes of the division any time. No, though.
1: you don't give him anyone like genuinely well-rounded who is primarily a grappler for a while because we need to get him like acclimated because he's good at jiu-jitsu already like he's very good uh the the triangle he got in his second contender series fight was fucking slick as butter uh that shit was fantastic but that that's
0: again he might just outstrike brandon allen
1: <laughs> yeah yeah maybe uh like we, we we just haven't like seen very much of him so it's a hard fight to pick what it's going to look like when there's just not much. I mean, he should be in the UFC. No, he sh- he should not be in the UFC objectively. But just, just, just he's not far
0: from Just on, on on experience. He's obviously going to be good. I mean, he, he has a solid base. He's young. He's athletic. He's got plenty left. He's in incredibly
1: team. young. Seems to hit hard based off of the limited experience we have or, or limited footage there is of him actually striking.
0: Yeah, I mean he's he's at least explosive and knows how to play off people being shit scared of being taken down by him.
1: Yeah, and uh, so I'm gonna say boneknuckle by like first eighteen second armbar or some shit. Yeah, probably. And in a it's not
0: really a fight that means anything.
1: And then in a a fight that's pretty fucking weird, Cody Garbrandt is fighting Trevin Jones. I feel like they're setting it up to try and give Cody Garbrandt a win, but. This is not an easy win for him. Trevin Jones hits quite hard, uh, but I think that an issue that Trevin Jones just generally has is that he's he doesn't have like very much depth. Uh, his his nickname is Five Star, but they don't tell you that it's like five out of ten star. Like he's he's very mid. Uh, his his entire game is just kind of like hanging in there. And, he's kind he of like a up.
0: bantamweight Derrick Lewis, and it kind of shows you how. Uh, being a Derek Lewis type, would function in a good division like bantamweight, where people have a well-rounded skill depth and fight at a high pace.
1: Yeah, like he'll he'll because try, but he mostly just gets his ass beat. Like he's he's a lot more aggressive.
0: Yeah, like but but you know he is still mostly like he's fucking strong and tough, and he hangs around and he tries to pick his moments. Um, and he's probably gonna knock Cody Garbrandt out because of that. He has some kind of, like, natural counter-punching aptitude. He just gets the fuck being out of him by, as I say, a well-rounded bantamweight with at least one area where they have genuine skill depth and the defensive acumen not to get mean. Um, but, like, Timor Valiev and Mario Batista are, like, p- pretty good fighters. Um, and, you know, Cody Garbrandt has just... It's... It's been bad look after bad look. He didn't he really look good in the Asunsao fight, even, which is the only win he's had in what, since the Dominic Cruz fight in, like, 2016? Yeah, December
1: right? 2016 was the yeah. his last good performance. Yeah. Um. And,
0: and then he's been finished in, you know, all of his losses, apart from the Rob Font fight, where he just looked absolutely despondent after the first couple of rounds, just didn't look like he wanted to be there, and just got the shit beaten out of him. And then he moved down to flyweight, which is has never gone well for anyone. Be it, there's just there's never been a career bantamweight who's gone down to flyweight and made it work, because it is just it's. It it it's the last stop for for weight cuts in the men's divisions. It's where the most weight misses happen, and it's where all of the fastest, most tireless guys are. Um, and you know, the only bantamweights who have had success at flyweights were basically flyweights who just didn't have a flyweight division to compete in yet. Um, and you know, Carcara France is actually a good counter puncher. He's he's quick. He he has he has fast hands. He, he's a good flyweight, um, but I'm I'm just not sure how much that matters at this point. And I feel like just hanging around and waiting for one gigantic left hook or uppercut or something is probably just going to work. Trem Jones is probably going to knock Cody Garbrandt out at some point.
1: I, I think there's a possibility that the fights kind of a war in the sense that Garbrandt's going to beat the absolute shit out of Trevin Jones, but any he gets his chin touched, he just drops. But Garbrandt hasn't been, like, flush, KO, flush KO'd, flush which is actually, like, understated. He, his chin's bad because his recovery's pretty bad. He gets hurt, and then he's hurt. He He, do, he doesn't recover from it. But he yeah, hasn't also, been like flatlined, well, which is to, the kind of fight that Trevin Jones. I feel like if someone's going to flatline him, it's going to be Trevin Jones.
0: Yeah, because Trevin Jones is, is so one and done. And, you know, a lot of the times that Cody's been finished, there at least had to be follow up. I guess, I guess Pedro Munoz is probably the closest someone came to just one shotting him.
1: Yeah, and the car had to drop him like three times. Um,
0: yeah. Whereas maybe if Trevin Jones doesn't just get the the single shot KO, uh, but but as you say, just Cody just he has a real issue with recovery. As soon as he starts getting hurt,
1: yeah, he he goes from looking like clean and comfortable to looking very red in the face, sweaty, starts breathing heavy. Like Rob Font didn't even necessarily drop him in the fight; he just hurt him really badly with several shots, and pretty much from the first time Font landed like a real good shot on him and Cody realized that he couldn't use grappling as a safe space, he just started getting fucking diced, like really comfortably. but Rob Font
0: will always come forward given the opportunity fights at a very high pace and is a big puncher himself.
1: Yeah, the fact that he is actually a pretty decent hitter and he didn't finish Garbrandt is both a bit of an indictment on Rob Font's process as a finisher, but also just shows that it's not as easy to knock out Garbrandt as people act like it is.
0: Yeah, but it's also a fact that the the function of, like, Rob Font, he's not like a sneaky counterpuncher. He was just constantly coming forward and keeping Cody Garbrandt on the end of volume. And as long as Cody Garbrandt wasn't getting himself into dumb exchanges where he was going to get counter-right hooked, then he was at least able to survive, even if he wasn't giving back significant offense of his own or really winning any of the rounds Um, but that's that's not the kind of fighter that Trevin Jones is like Trevin Jones is going to allow Cody Garbrandt to have his own slice of range and to put his own offense together and I'm sure Cody Garbrandt is still dangerous when he's able to do that it's just I just I, I can't pick someone who's tough and can hang around and find big single shots to lose to Cody Garbrandt
1: yeah, so <laughs> I'm going to pick Trevin Jones by first round knockout, but I really would not be surprised if this is actually a winnable fight for Garbrandt, like I said earlier. I mean, it really
0: it really should be, but I'm still I'm going to pick Trevin Jones by second round KO after he's get, after getting his ass beat in the first round.
1: Like I said, Trevin Jones, he's he's not a great fighter. Uh he he is very flawed. He's not the most accurate puncher he can just be beaten in exchanges if someone just takes small victories pretty comfortably. I think there's much less powerful, like less quick people than Garbrandt that could beat him in a a pure striking match just by tagging him a few times and getting out of range. But Garbrandt's not that type of fighter he hasn't shown to be in a long time. He he doesn't take small victories. In the
0: overall style matchup sense, this is potentially a way more forgiving than The last fight Cody was booked for, which was against Julio Arce, who actually probably wouldn't have finished him, but really could have just pieced him up from range and made him look kind of dumb for three rounds.
1: Yeah. And and simultaneously, I think it's actually a fight that's harder for Garbrandt to just outright win. Because Arce is uh, very durable, but he's he's slower and Garbrandt kind of doesn't matter if you're durable, like Garbrandt can still fuck you up really badly. So in the RSA fight, I think Garbrandt actually had some ability to just flash, Oli RSA really quickly. Uh, whereas I don't think that's much of an option in this one. I think Trevin Jones is a bit too durable for that. I think uh, I think that Trevin Jones can just kind of eat the shit necessary to get to the win, even if he doesn't knock him out. I think Garbrandt. It's it's hard not to when Garbrandt is has been finished in like. Forty-five fights in the last four years, but then in in a much wackier matchup, uh we got Derek Brunson versus Dragis Duplessis.
0: It is wacky. <laughs> I don't know, dude. I I don't know. Dragis <laughs> Duplessis tried very hard. That's his whole style.
1: Brunson should be able to fuck the guy up on top, but also the guy like Duplessis has pretty good <laughs> hips.
0: Brunson gasses. He looked bad recently. I mean, he had a run where he looked okay against decent style matchups, and then just... uh, Jared Cannon just kind of dunked his nuts in Darryl Brunson's mouth, but that was an easy fight to pick. Rikas Duplessis... I mean, what is he supposed to be good at?
1: Uh, He's not accurate. He just hits hard, and he is very tenacious. He does not give up.
0: Yeah, and... the fact that he doesn't guess with the way that he fights is hilarious. Cause I mean, when you say he hits hard, he just puts maximum heat on everything. It just has the stupidest exchanges.
1: Yeah. His last fight against Darren Till, he beat the ever living fuck out of Darren Till for a full round, like basically from the first three seconds. And then he kind of got tagged up for a round, uh, <laughs> Because he was just like recovering, and Darren Till is—I mean, we forget it because it doesn't come up very much. But he's a pretty decent ranged kickboxer. Uh, and, and then the second that he—he he was like, you know what? I'm gonna—I'm gonna try and take him down again. He just like you just finished Darren Till really easily, and it felt like the second round didn't even need to happen. So I—I I, I think this is a a. It feels like a fight that's so easy to pick that it's hard to pick because it just can't be that easy. I'm going to say Drake's Duplessis by second or third round finish against Derek Brunson because I think Derek Brunson is going to uh, win the first round very comfortably but not get a finish.
0: Have a bunch of wrestling success, but Duplessis is just going to hang tough and, and be huge and insane. Yeah,
1: like he's very strong, so he's probably going to gas Brunson out fast enough to where Brunson isn't going to be able to attrite Duplessis into a finish so I, th- I think the first round is actually possible that it looks fucking insane if we can get brunson scared shitless because scared brunson is still a-, a very wild fighter even despite his like last few year like more yeah, he
0: had he had the the blonde brunson henry hoofed arc yeah people forget how many arcs <laughs> Derek brunson has had in his career because started out that people just thought he was insanely boring and he was just this like really conservative blank blanketing top position wrestler and then he, he had the phase of just being a-, a an absolute just maniac first round KO machine who who would also just push forward into the dumbest exchanges he could possibly create and it would just be a 50-50 every time but it worked out for him until he fought Robert Whitaker. Yeah, more recently he was like just, like, fought at a more manageable pace and with a more, like, consistent process that utilizes the things that he can do and the way that they fit together. Even though he's still extremely janky on the feet, he just al- always is going to be. But, you know, Rikis Duplessis isn't a, a a model of perfect form or technique or anything. <laughs> I'm just going to pick Plessis because Brunson's kind of old. He's been talking about retiring
1: for a couple of years now. Yeah, that's uh, that's my guess as well. I, I think that K- Brunson, at like as a more technical version, is actually a, a, has a much worse matchup against uh, Plessis than if he was to just go insane.
0: Yeah, quite possibly.
1: It it
0: it, it seems like that that would be his best chance is it would be to bring out the old Brunson. And, I mean, he might not have any choice given the way that Duplessis starts fights.
1: Yeah, uh, that's why I think getting scared into a winning strategy is actually his best bet. If if he remains composed, I think he just gets beaten by the dynamicism.
0: Yeah, or dynamism. but Brunson can be uh, genuinely dangerous when he fights like a cornered animal. Um, so we've got Viviana Arujo versus Amanda Hebus. Um... Manda Hebas should probably win because she is fast and can do a one-two, and should basically be able to repl- replicate the Alexa Grasso win because she's also a very good grappler. And I don't expect her to, you know, even though she's a former uh, strawweight, I don't expect her to just be so dramatically outstrength by Araujo that she's gonna like give up bad positions and lose rounds based on that. Because Arujo, strong, powerful, okay top player, but a very one-note striker who does not have a a lot of ideas at range and never wants to fight at a a particularly high pace. Um, But she hits pretty hard, so she might drop Amanda That's a thing that happens in Amanda Heber's fights.
1: It's really just about if she drops her twice, because if she drops her twice, she probably like wins one round then wins the other round with the knockdown. And it, she probably is gonna drop her once. <laughs> you know,
0: we've 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 seen Amanda Heber still win those fights.
1: She either outclasses someone that's much below her level, like the Page Vincent fight, or she gets dropped, like in the Vernon Genderoba fight. Even if her wins.
0: Yeah, and that's what I mean. In a way, this is kind of just like a souped-up but less good version of the Xanjarova uh, fight.
1: So, a uh, Strange one. I don't have that much to say about the fight. I, I think that uh, Amanda Hibas, by all means, should have the technical acumen to win the fight comfortably. But I'm not going to expect it. I- I'm going to say like Amanda Hibas by decision, but I'm going to say it tentatively. And then we can just do quick hits for the rest of the card, because nothing is like that interesting. But there is or that, like, interesting to talk about, but there are some pretty interesting fights. I
0: mean, Julian Marquez versus Marc-Andre Barrio is fun.
1: Yeah, it's two Marquez guys Marquez that...
0: fights like a lunatic and is all violence all the time, and Marc-Andre Barrio is just very well-rounded.
1: Yeah, I feel like they're it's a bit of a mirror match, except Marc-Andre Barrio is just better at everything, but less... For Julian ability. Marquez
0: is more crazy violent.
1: Yeah, like, less able to hurt people than Marquez is... But then again, Marquez isn't even, like, that good at hurting people.
0: I mean, he's not crafty about it, but he's uh, he's fucking crazy, and he is dangerous.
1: Yeah. He, he goes hard, which is all you can hope for. <laughs> and then... <laughs> he's uh, never in a boring fight. Yeah, Kanan Song versus Ian Machado-Gary. Which probably will be pretty boring,
0: but Ian Gary will probably win.
1: Yeah, maybe. Uh, Kanan Song... I I find it strange how well they're actually matching up Ian Machado Gary. They're giving him a a genuine like prospect-growing series of fights.
0: Yeah, this is something that has occurred to me recently, is that when, when people talk about the UFC protecting fighters or just not giving fighters the good fights, I think the UFC will basically match you up with whoever you feel like you are ready for at this point. And when you see guys like Ian Gary or Paddy Pimbler get these kind of like actual prospect development routes that you don't see a lot of the time in the UFC, um, I think particularly since the uh, the retirement of the tyrannical Joe Silver, um I, th- I think m- much more of it just comes down to the fighters fighters having like good management who understand how to build them but still be able to, like, give them a good platform in in the uh, uh, premier organization for the sport. Because most MMA fighters just have terrible matchups, and they're all just idiots who will take fights with anyone.
1: Yeah, I I feel like people let their anger that the UFC loves, like, blonde European people so much uh, get to them. But, like, people... They're matching Patty Pimblett and Ian Machado Gary well. They should not be fighting anyone better than who they are fighting. And they're still just, like, not even narrowly getting by. Because, you know, uh, Ian Gary is winning his fights pretty comfortably. But these are have been hard fights for him. Like, he's, he's had to think about stuff. He's had to bring out new layers that he hadn't really used before. Or we hadn't really seen before. He's having to develop his skill set. Uh... And, and you know, also his nickname is the future. He's not the present. We don't need to be giving him all these crazy fights right now. Like, like, let him come along. I think the UFC finally learned their lesson of trying to get every young fighter up to a title shot to get, like, a crazy young champion over because it's fucking stupid. If someone's got the goods for it, they'll win the fights to get there. You don't got to push them.
0: Or even just generally, like... Being like, oh, we got this guy who's really interesting and talented and he's like a real fan favorite potential. Let's just give him all of the most brutal style matchups immediately. And, you know, this this process has just absolutely broken the majority of UFC prospects who have been given that treatment other than guys like fucking
1: Max Holloway. Or like Conor. But but even then Connor, they still gave him some light touches.
0: He still got Marcus Brimage in his debut.
1: Yeah, they gave him light touches early and then they were like, here's Dennis Seaver. Seaver's pretty good.
0: Yeah, you know, he beat Dustin Poirier.
1: Yeah. But it,
0: it, he fought Dustin and Max Holloway for that matter, even though it was a baby Max Holloway. But you know, he st- he still had to work his way up to those fights even in the UFC, compared to Max Holloway, just like, Oh well, you're 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 nineteen and four and 0. here, fight Dustin Poirier immediately
1: now we 've got like tall orthodox Connor in Ian Gary and they're giving him a, a reasonable uh, like series of fights to bring him up Kanon song is taller than the people that Ian Gary's been fighting so far, so that'll be a new wrinkle to to see how he handles that i uh, they've kind of been giving him people that are relatively short for the division so it'll it'll be interesting uh maybe Kanon song can use his length to be annoying but i I think it's they're setting up Gary for a win.
0: Yeah, that's like most of the card. Like Tabitha Ricci versus Jessica Panay should be fine. Fahid Basharat, yeah.
1: Javid Basharat's brother. Yeah,
0: uh, the- he's fighting a guy with uh, an even cooler name in Damon Blackshear.
1: Yeah, and that guy's cool. He's a uh, he has a very Charles Oliveira styled grappling or inspired grappling game, where he he just does a bunch of like leg entanglements if you're really fucking him up and then back takes and then if you def- defend that, he'll just get your back again and just play with his guard and throw up s- subs until you let him up. It should be a very interesting fight.
0: Yep, pretty solid card overall. Not even going to talk about the last couple fight nights. Who cares? Other than, oh, well Christian, I guess you were right, Jessica Andrade's shot. But also, Aaron Blanchfield might be pretty good. So that's 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 cool.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, that peak guy, he's cool he's funny
0: that shit was silly i'm here for it but who who fucking cares this has been the forbidden technique podcast uh if you enjoyed this content and all of the other great stuff the fight site puts out please consider supporting us on patreon A pledge of just five dollars gains access to a huge library of really great great quality analytical content and uh, also to do a discord server where we have a great community of five fans all walks of life just a great community to, to be in great people to talk to you can hang out with, with staff and ask us questions we'll see you later peace later